Al Jazeera podcast. The Women's World Cup has been full of surprises from nations big and small. On August 2nd, it was one of the biggest underdog stories of the tournament. Brazil ranked 8th in the world and Jamaica 43rd. And yet, Jamaica's defense shut out Brazil and kept them from scoring. And we are so, so close. It's there! They've done it! Jamaica! You can hear the result shock even the announcer. It was a huge moment. The draw sent Jamaica through and eliminated Brazil. The tiny, tiny Caribbean island in only the second Women's World Cup who hadn't ever won a game at this level until Saturday. Last week, the Jamaican team and their fans were walking on air. It's been absolutely amazing ride watching my reggae girls team make history again. It was one of several moments that marked an arrival for smaller teams, putting the usual giants of women's football to the test. Ten days on, Jamaica has gone home. And the tournament is into the quarterfinals, but the surprises continue. With historic wins, also came some historic losses from some of the biggest teams, countries who spent years investing in the women's game. It has been the World Cup of upsets. They're there because they can play football. It's nice to be reminded that that's why they're there, that they keep top-ranked teams on their toes. So what's behind the growing play parity finally making it to the Women's World Cup? And how much does funding make a difference? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. USA, Canada, Germany, along with Brazil, were all top 10 ranked teams and all eliminated from the tournament by the end of the second stage. My name is Shireen Ahmed. I am a multi-platform sports journalist. I'm a senior contributor at CBC Sports. I'm an instructor of sports journalism at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. And um, I love football. You sound completely steeped in sport. You're also a footballer yourself. You've played all your life. 40 years, I don't age myself, but yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. probably more than a lot of your listeners have been alive. <laughs> you just got back to Canada from covering the Women's World Cup in Australia. What was it like being there? This is not my first Women's World Cup. This is my third. Let's talk with Shireen Ahmed, who is going to Australia any minute now. Any minute. Any minute. I'm about to leave right now. <laughs> I'm going to get on a plane. Right now. It was, it was pretty incredible. To be in a place that's steeped in love of women's sport is really an incredible experience. To be in Australia where, you know, the Matildas are everywhere, the the national women's team, Sam Kerr's face is everywhere, there's a celebration, kind of is, you know, setting a blueprint for what really should happen in these places. The World Cup is still going on, though, and you are now in Canada. Why is that? So Canada did not advance beyond the group stages, and they finished third in their pool behind Australia and Nigeria, which is wonderful for Nigeria. Also, to be honest, for the Matildas, Canada did not have the performance they wanted, and people were actually in shock because Canada was coming into this as the reigning world champions. It's a glory gold for Canada. 
their first in the women's football at the Olympic Games. Look at the celebrations after a stunning shootout. And so, much like the United States, that were also are not advancing beyond the round of 16, which was also a shock to everybody. They're the reigning world champions. It's one of the first time you've seen both Olympic and world champs not advance beyond the group stages and beyond to the quarterfinals. Can you describe what you were feeling in that game? In the match where Canada was beaten by Australia, it was probably one of the most difficult things to do. You're having players stand in front of you who are national icons in tears, apologizing, and it's heartbreaking. And, you know, you try to be as gentle as possible and ask them questions about, you know, how are you feeling? And they're literally shattered. Like, they're absolutely devastated. Mm. And there's a lot of factors that wasn't simply that they played a bad game. I saw you hug every member of your team tonight on the field there before you left the field. What was your message to them? I I just love them all. Um, You can make me cry. Uh, Just, we go through everything together, you know, Um, winning and losing. It's, it's all part of the game. It's why we love this sport. In my opinion, as someone who's covered the team for decades, there was a lot of psychosocial factors as well leading up into this. They've had a very, very difficult year. Accustomed to doing battle on the field, the players were called to Ottawa to discuss a different kind of fight, what they consider unfair treatment from the sports federation. They're one of the many teams who are in disputes with our federation about pay and proper remuneration. That includes Nigeria, that includes Jamaica. Spain had other disputes with the federation. So you're really seeing a lot of overlapping concerns of different teams in Canada. It's just one of them. So, Shireen, let's take a look at where we are in the tournament. Who are the big winners and big losers so far? One of the things I love about the World Cup is that it brings teams from different places and different styles of football, different energies together. This has probably been one of the most exciting group stages I've ever seen at this tournament. You had debutants Morocco advance, which is amazing and has only been done once before by Cameroon in 2015. So it was phenomenal to see Morocco. And we're still coming off riding this wave of like Dima Maghreb from the men's tournament. The men had a World Cup six months ago. The Moroccan fans are some of the most robust and sort of like enthusiastic I've ever seen. (laughs) So to be there and to to watch it again is, is really incredible. Talk of the town was Jamaica. The reggae girls defying all odds to advance the FIFA Women's World Cup round of 16 for the first time in history. The reggae girls are wonderful. They're exuberant. They're so talented. They have an energy and a passion. And then you have, you know, Germany is very clinical. They also didn't get out of the group stages, which for me was a big wow, because they were slated. They're number two ranked in the world. And they also were exited in the group stages. So it's kind of shocking. I want to dive deep on Morocco and Jamaica because I think they are a good microcosm for some of the trends that we're seeing in this World Cup. So we're seeing teams make it further than they ever have before, some with a fair amount of financial support and some who are still fighting for it. Morocco, as you mentioned, they debuted at the Women's World Cup this year, and there was so much excitement around it. 
This month, Morocco will make its debut appearance at the FIFA Women's World Cup, the first team to qualify from the Arab world. Tell us about how Morocco got to this point. Morocco is literally creating a blueprint of how to do this and invest in your women. And to see a federation who invests in their women is really important. And Africa is where people write off a lot of the time unfairly. They don't give it the dues of tactical achievement and investment. And they're the only league in the world that has a professional league of women with two tiers that is paid. So, like, people don't know that. Morocco's way ahead of the game. And so you'll see that. You'll see places like Morocco advancing really quickly. And according to Aziz and Nate Sibaha, that was the plan. Aziza is a TV presenter and journalist for France 24. And she worked on a documentary all about Morocco's women's football strategy. She says these very investments that Morocco is making are key for the development of the sport around the country. I can call it a groundbreaking move, actually. Starting in 2019 by establishing the National Women's Football League, which was something very important, an important step towards the development of women's football. Then, in 2020, a Marshall Plan was rolled out. That's the plan the U.S. unveiled after World War II to rebuild Europe. This one was a major investment in Moroccan women's football. A four-year plan introduced in 2020. They professionalized the top two divisions, provided set wages for players and staff at every club, and bolstered grassroots funding. A six-fold increase in the funding, with an annual budget of 6 million euros. Shireen says you can see how that investment's paid off. It didn't take very long. I mean, the National Women's Program essentially really got off the ground in 2020. So when you look at how quickly they've mobilized, and Morocco does have players from the diaspora who play in England or in France, and who are entitled to play because of Moroccan descent and connection, which happens all the time in football, it has been incredible. So I think we're only seeing the beginning. To see what happens when women are given access to top facilities and training and coaches. And Morocco, outside of Rabat, has one of the most beautiful facilities I've ever seen. And if you've been watching their matches, Aziza says, you've seen the results. I think there will be in Morocco women's football before and after the World Cup 2023. More about that other World Cup surprise, Jamaica. After the break. On the Inside Story podcast, how will the Ukraine war affect Poland's future and its relationships with neighbours and allies? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, Shireen, let's go back to Jamaica, because, as you mentioned, they made it further than many people might have expected, but it is a very different case in terms of funding. So they were ranked 43rd in the world before the tournament started, and they didn't have the same financial support that Morocco did. Can you tell us about their World Cup journey? So their World Cup journey is one that has been, you know, Coach Donaldson said in a presser sometimes for camp, we don't even have a place to train. Mm. And so there's this very fraught relationship with their federation, which essentially for people who don't know, the federation is the one that employs the players. 
So the players are essentially their staff <laughs> of, of the Federation, and they play, they represent the country. So they're supposed to be paid for those days and that time. FIFA reportedly is giving $30,000 salary to all players attending, but it will go through the Federation. Now, the problem with that is because FIFA is not paying the players directly. There's very serious allegations and discussions about them being corrupt or not spending the money where they ought to be spending. The Reggae Girls, the Jamaican women's national team, accused its soccer federation of being extremely disorganized and sometimes not even paying them what they're owed. The books are not open for the Jamaican federation. We don't know where the money is gone or has gone. And that's frustrating for players who need basic things like access to support staff, nutritionists, chefs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these teams make do with none of that. And these are very often things that are given as a given for the men's side. Chinyalu Asher, a Jamaican national team player we spoke to, says at one point when the team was traveling, they didn't have coats. I think there was like frosties in the air and... You know, our coaching staff went to uh, Costco and bought us coats and just things like that, where it's like, look, you know, not to say that we need every single item in the book, but we, we need to be provided for, you know. The Jamaican women's team put out a statement before the World Cup drawing attention to this fact. We've seen that with the United States. Canada is doing the same thing. We've seen it time and time again, and this is not a problem. That's specific to the Global South. This we've seen, you know, lack of support in women's sports generally, lack of support is a global problem. Jamaica, though, had to resort to GoFundMe campaigns to get the support they needed. One of the midfielder's moms started a GoFundMe to help support the team financially, which raised $50,000, and another campaign raised $45,000. This is Chenyelo again. We are so grateful for those that supported the team, but at at the end of the day, it's very, in my opinion, embarrassing and slightly shameful that we still have to kind of stoop to those levels to get the resources that we need as professional players. It was a GoFundMe set up by one of the players' mothers because the players themselves can't do that. It's against policy. So it was so that they could have the resources they needed. And, you know, the Jamaican Football Federation has been put on blast. But, you know, this mom obviously saw the gaps and said, I need to fill these gaps for these players. For them to go as far as they did, I'm not surprised from a, like an athletic standpoint. I think they came and it's not that they had a point to prove that they're here to say, like, we play and we can keep up, we can hang. And they definitely can. And from certain media perspectives, they'll say things like, oh, they have passion. They're there because of passion. They're there because they can play football. Mm -hmm. Let's be very clear yeah. why. Unfortunately, for fans of those two teams that we've been talking about, both Jamaica and Morocco are out of the tournament now. What were those moments like in the fan zones or where you were? What was the heartbreak like? Well, heartbreak is, I mean, this is the thing with sport. It will bring you joy. It'll bring you mm -hmm. jubilation, but also bring you a tremendous amount of grief. And it'll bring you sadness. And I was in the stands when Jamaica qualified. They beat Brazil. So at the same time, and this is literally a couple of days after Canada has been out. So yeah. I'm still feeling a little numb about that. But then I went to go see Jamaica, Brazil. And I was pretty, it was pretty familiar, the feeling of, 
sadness and grief. Yeah. Because Marta Vieira da Silva, one of the greatest to play the game, that would be her last match with Brazil. And there's tears. There's tears from the media who, I mean, and, and I, this whole idea of you have to be objective. Those of us who cover women's sport mm-hmm. are not there for the money. Let's be, <laughs> we believe in the sport. We love the sport and we love women's sport. With Jamaica and even with Morocco, although the players were in tears, there's a lot of gratitude and there's a lot of pride. Like what can their countries be other than proud? The fact that Morocco advanced is such a big deal and people don't understand that. There's definitely strategy behind the way they played. And this is also a game of, of, of strategy and planning. Who are the, the teams that we're playing? What do we have to do to advance? And the fact that, you know, Morocco went forward and Jamaica went forward and other superpowers didn't is incredible. And Chaniello, who played for Jamaica, is proud. Well, mostly proud. But it's kind of like, wow, look what we did. But dang, you know... Did they have to go through all that, you know, or what could have been if they could have just focused on football or focused on their own performances? We've been talking a lot about play parity, and I want to talk about pay parity next, because top teams, U.S., England, Spain, all receive pay parity with the men's teams in their countries after a long fight. After years of unprecedented success on the global stage, this morning, a victory for the U.S. women's soccer team off the field. But funding isn't the only thing that leads to the success of a team. And we saw this firsthand with Team USA's early exit from the tournament. How much does funding make a difference? Well, I mean, so it's it's not something that you can just pin on one type of performance. Mm. For me, although the statements of a lot of the Canadian players, for example, were that we didn't play well tonight. And it's a bad night to have a bad night, is what Jesse Fleming said. So the team to have a bad night all at the same time, I mean, that's what happened. But for the United States, they lost in penalty shootouts. I mean, goalkeeper Alessa Nair, there's nothing more she could do. But at the end of the day, sometimes that's what happens in sport. And it really is that simple. Sometimes the results don't go the way that you want. I think it's really important that this isn't the end. It's just sometimes there's new chapters. So, Shireen, we are in the knockout stages, and it's been a very exciting tournament so far, as evidenced by this conversation. What are you most looking forward to in the next round? Japan. I'm just, I'm waiting for Japan to sweep the floor. Sweden and Japan is a match that's coming up. And I'm excited for that because the way that they play is very different. While Japan has a lot of finesse tactically, Sweden is like a very aggressive and physical team, but also tactically, like they're clinical in the way that they finish and the way that they pass. And I'm excited to see that that sort of fusion of those two teams and see how it plays out on the pitch. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't root for European teams traditionally. Like before, it was France because I had the most representation from Western North Africa. And there was a connection to Muslim histories and immigrant experience there. And also just the lack of support for Muslim women in the sport in France. So I was supporting the players. And for those that don't know, hijab is banned in France and football and basketball. While FIFA, soccer's world governing body, has allowed the Muslim veil on the pitch since 2014, the French Football Federation bans it. Because you referenced hijab on the pitch. So Nuhayla Benzina, she was the first ever hijab-wearing player 
to be in the World mm-hmm. Cup. And this is like a decade after FIFA removed its ban on headscarves. She's on the Moroccan team. Talk to me about some of the highlights news-wise, because it's always so much more than just the play. There's all the narratives that come out after the World Cup and during the World Cup. Talk to me about the ones that stood out to you the most. So I'm somebody who's been pushing the narrative (laughs) of attention to hijab ban in France. Well, the hijab ban was formally lifted in 2014, March 1st, 2014. France and the Fédération Française du Football still insists that they prefer laïcité, which is secularism, in their country so they don't permit any religious object, which is absurd because if you look at the professional leagues, Mm -hmm. many of the players who are South American will sign a cross before they go on the pitch, or they have religious tattoos that are visible. So you can't do this. This is very specifically a policy and a law that targets black and brown Muslim women. So it attacks her bodily agency. It's basically saying you can't wear that. So this applies specifically to football and basketball. One of the rights of sport is to be able to play it and practice it in safety and in freedom. You can't do that in France. It's misogynistic and it's anti-Muslim. What Nuhayla Benzina represents is a whole generation of women as well that didn't get the opportunity. Where are the Nuhayla Benzinas in France? Where are they in other parts of the world who were too reluctant to play with hijab because felt that they would be excluded anyway? She represents not only the possibility and the power, but she also represents those opportunities that were lost for so many. When it comes to the rest of the tournament, though, Shireen says she's here for the football now. The expression is, I have no dog in this race. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I am I'm out. I'm not married to one team in particular anymore. And I implore people, even if your team is no longer participating, to be here and to participate and to witness is something that we're really lucky to do. Women's sport is going nowhere but up. Mm. So I really encourage all your listeners to watch a game, get invested, think about it and continue to support women's sport at a local level as well. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Paranisa Campana and Amy Walters, with Chloe K. Lee, Ashish Malhotra, David Enders, Sonia Bagat, Khalid Sultan, Miranda Lynn, Zaina Badr, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back.